Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Saturday, April the 23rd, 2022. It is currently 8.55 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, I'm going to begin this by asking you a number of important questions. I want you to really, really think about it because I think this is, I think this is, I think this subject that we're going to be talking about, it could be just like a fun little thing to discuss, but I think really it, it brings up some deeper issues. Once again, I have, I have something in front of me and we could just talk about it from a surface level, but you know, I always like to go deeper, like, okay, here is the article, here's the concept but let's go beyond what is on the surface. Maybe sometimes people appreciate that. Maybe you don't. But that's what we're going to try to do. So let's start with the what I think the deeper questions. All right. Are you ready? Now, I want you to really think about this. I want you to really, really think about this. What do you need? What is absolutely essential in your life for spiritual growth other than the Bible? What do you believe is absolutely essential, absolutely critical in your life outside of the Bible? Or we could say it this way. What is required other than the Bible for you to grow spiritually? What is absolutely necessary other than the Bible? What do you think is required? What do you need? What do you believe is a necessity outside of the word of God to grow spiritually. Let's try it this way. Let's say there's two individuals, all right? Let's say they're, they're on a deserted island, okay? One lives in the far south side of the deserted island. The other one lives on the far north side of the deserted island. They don't even know that the other person exists, and there they are. One person has a Bible, and that's it just has a Bible. On the other side of the island, the person has a Bible, has a lot of very important Christian books that have been written throughout church history, has access to, say, the Sermons 2.0 app, um, has access to maybe the Edify Christian podcast app. He's got so he's got all these Christian podcasts. He's got all these Christian sermons. He's got five or 10 very important books written in church history, and he has his Bible. All right. And let's say when they when they ended up on this deserted island, both of them was at the exact same place, spiritually speaking. They were at the exact same level of spiritual maturity and growth. All right. You leave them there. You come back in 12 months. Who grew the most spiritually? The one with just the Bible or the one with the Bible access to th millions of sermons and Christian podcasts and Christian books. Who grew the most? And is there a direct correlation between why that person grew? Did the person grow because they had access to all of these things? So in other words, did the person with all of these other things grow more than the one with the Bible, demonstrating the Bible in and of itself is not sufficient for spiritual growth? Or did the one with the Bible alone grow just as much, meaning that all of those things are not really necessary? This, this is very important because throughout church history, there's always been this idea, you need, if you're going to grow spiritually, you absolutely need this. Every time a church, you know, kicks off a new, I guess, I'm going to call it a new season of small groups, they will, I've heard it preached so many times by listening to all kinds of sermons, I'll hear it preached from the pulpit and be like, listen, it is absolutely essential. You are not going to grow in your Christian life if you're not a part of a community. If you're not part of a small group, you have to have small groups. And so they basically tell you that if you're not in a small group, you're not going to grow spiritually. I was told, I don't know how many times in my Christian life, fellowship is absolutely essential. If you're going to grow spiritually, you need to be at church fellowships. You have to go to the church picnic, church potluck, church... And in other words, I needed activities to grow spiritually. Now, they would have, they would have never told me that the Bible isn't sufficient, but in a roundabout way, they were telling me, if it's just me and the Bible, it's not going to work. Others will say, if you don't go to church, you can't grow spiritually, all right? 
Oh, I can bet that there, I can bet there is one that is more confused. Okay. Someone in chat just said, I bet there's one that's more confused. That's probably true. And probably the one with all the sermons. Okay. All right. That, that's, that's pretty funny. Uh, I, I have a feeling, I don't know which way they were going with their comment, but when me, I, I think that the one with all of the sermons and all the Christian books may end up more confused than the one with just the Bible. You know what? I don't know if that's where they were going, but that's what it makes me think of. But I just, I think, I think it's just funny that so many times, you know, hey, we're going to begin a new discipleship program, or we're going to begin a new sermon series. And you need this sermon series. If you will commit to this sermon series, you will grow tremendously. Or someone, uh, Christian Publishing do this, does this all the time. You need this new book. It will revolutionize your Christian life. It will change you forever. Christian conferences, you need this conference. It will revolutionize your spiritual life. So what what do you need? What is required? What is essential outside of the Bible for your spiritual growth? I want you to really, really think about that. How essential are these other things? How helpful are they? Now, a lot of people say, well, the Bible is sufficient, but these other things will greatly help. Okay, but so if I just have the Bible then you're telling me if I have these other things, I can grow faster, I can grow more. See, so in a roundabout way, you're still, you're almost calling into question the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, you could argue, but wait a minute, wait a minute. God gave the church teachers, pastors, and evangelists, so clearly these, these individuals are required and are essential. Yeah, we could, go, we could go a lot of different directions with this. The reason I'm asking this question is I, I, I don't even know how I came across it, but I came across a video called Five Books Every Christian Should Read. Five Books Every Christian Should Read. Now, as soon as I saw the title, I thought, well, wait a minute. What if, we, what if a Christian doesn't read these books? What happens if a Christian doesn't read these books? What, what, what does that mean for their spiritual Live, but I'm going to play uh, this video. It's uh, I've got the audio of it. It's, uh, it's about 57 seconds long, so they're going to go through them really quick. Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. They're going to give us five books. Couple of things. One, I would be curious how many individuals have actually read them. That would be number one. Number two, do you think your Christian life would dramatically change if you did read them? What are the negative consequences of not reading them? Just, just, just along those lines. But I really want to just put this idea, like, you know, here's the Bible and here's all of these other things. Now, look, I am grateful. I am so grateful for all the things that are available to us. I'm, I'm constantly trying to get people to use all the things that are available to us. Like right now, if I open up the Sermons 2.0 app, there are 13 live broadcasts going on right now on the Sermons 2.0 app. In fact, let's just look at all of them, all right? Let's just look at all of them, just to show you. Bible Baptist Church um, is live. Blessed Hope Bible Presbyterian Church is live. Condell Park Bible Church is live. Free Reformed Church is live. Free Reformed Church of Southern River is uh, is uh Live. Free Reformed Church Rockingham is live. Granite Belt Baptist Church is live. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's live. Hope Baptist Church is live. Levington Baptist Church is live. Northside Baptist Church is live. Hang on, let me uh, scroll down here. Um, Shoalhaven Gospel Church is live. And Titus 2.1. I don't know. Titus 2.1. I don't, that's not a church. It's, it's a ministry of some sort. So, and then of course, then we're live. Now, all of that's available to every Christian, right? It's available to everyone who has an internet connection, has a mobile device. Now, I, I, I want you to make it very clear. I think that's amazing. The Edify Christian Podcast app, they claim over 2 million Christian podcasts. I think that's amazing that that's available to us. So I'm not in any way saying we don't, that these things are not helpful. We don't need them. I just want to really make you think how essential are they to your spiritual growth? And are, when we say that we need all of these things, when churches come up with a new program and say, you need this, are we calling into question the sufficiency of Scripture? Do we really believe the Bible is sufficient? 
Now we say, well, the Bible is sufficient, but I need someone to preach it and teach it. Okay, well then, uh, well then that gives. Well, we can get into a whole discussion there. That kind of goes. We can go back to uh, that kind of goes back to the Protestant Reformation. We could get into a big ch- church history discussion. We won't go there right now. But here, let's do this. Let's at least consider these five books that every Christian, according to this video, should read. I want to know who's read them, who hasn't, and it would be it would be interesting to know like what what's the difference in the in the lives of those who have versus the lives of those who haven't. Because here's what I have found in my life as a Christian. I have found that a, the majority of Christians, the majority of Christians in any church, if you take, you have a church of 100, the majority, if you have a church of 200, the majority, you have a church of 50, the majority of Christians don't really read a lot of Christian books. There are always that one group that does, but most do not. You can recommend book after book after book after book after book after book. You can have a church library. You can plead with the people. You can beg them, read this, read this, read this. You, you'll hear me sometimes in sermons. I will mention it all the time. We have the fundamentals. Um, I have the four volume set like right there behind the pulpit. I'm always like, read this, read this. I have a book on um, hermeneutics. You'll hear me mention it all the time. People need to read this. I'm always recommending books, but I look, I just know the reality is majority are not going to do so. What I've also found interesting, again, other than men who feel called to ministry. Now, men who feel called to ministry typically read a lot of books and buy a lot of books. The average man who doesn't feel called to ministry typically don't buy that many books and don't read that many books. What I have found, if you take the average church member, not, not a fellow called to ministry, and you take male and versus female, what I have seen is that females tend to read more Christian books than men. That's just, you, you can draw your own conclusions. Now, what does that mean? Does that make one more spiritual than the other? Like, we, we could have, it's just, it's just an, inter- an interesting observation, especially, uh, see, in light of what, two days ago, we did a broadcast in, in regards to why men hate church and the, and a study that was done about that. We, we, we discussed that. But let's, let's listen to this. I know you're like, get to the five books. I just want to know about the five books. I know you do. But I want to go to the deeper issue here. Is the Bible is sufficient? How many books do you need to read? Are books required? How, what, what other things do you absolutely need to grow spiritually? Uh, those are, those are, are, are bigger questions. But let's listen to this. Are you ready? We're probably going to do a lot of stop and start on this. I do have the list in front of me. So, yeah. Yeah, some of these, I'm just, some of, okay, you'll, you'll just say, well, are you ready? Here we go. Well, it, it, it might change from day to day, uh, depending on when you ask me, but uh, a few that I could, I, I'll, I'll throw out. Um, I think uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation. Let's stop right there. Athanasius on the Incarnation. Now, I don't know how long ago. No, I think I gave, I can't remember. I think we bought a number of copies for people in the church. I don't think it was on the incarnation. It was a book about the life of Athanasius. I think it was an overview on the life of Athanasius, Athanasius that we gave out to people at the church. I think we even had a, a couple of the books at like at the front door of the church that we gave out, kind of an overview in the history of Athanasius because I gave everyone a basic uh like overview. And I think I have told everyone in my church to read on the incarnation by Athanasius. So it would be interesting to know how many Christians have actually read that book. Now, these are books every, every Christian should read, but what happens if you don't? Can you understand the, the incarnation sufficiently with the Bible? Now, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not in any way, obviously, if you know anything about me, I am no way saying that we shouldn't read I just, I always find it just funny. Like on one hand, the Bible is sufficient, but then the rest of the time churches are like, you need this. You must have this. You need this. So how important is Athanasius on the incarnation? How important is it? Let's see if they say anything about the actual book. Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. 
Let's stop right here. Okay. They're not going to say much about them. So number one, Athanasius on the incarnation. Number two, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now, if you have a Kindle, again, another amazing thing living in the time that we live, you can probably get both of those for basically free, 99 cents, probably relatively cheap for your Kindle. Even if you don't have a Kindle, you can just download the Kindle app on your mobile device, go shopping uh, on the Kindle store on Amazon, and you can you can get these books for relatively cheap. But here's a little bit about um, what someone said about Athanasius on the Incarnation. When I first opened on the Incarnation, I just soon discovered I was reading a masterpiece for only a mastermind could have written so deeply on a subject with such classical simplicity, and that it was written by C.S. Lewis from the introduction on that particular, whatever particular copy that they're referencing, Athanasius on the Incarnation, because obviously the original C.S. Lewis did not write, <laughs> write the introduction to Athanasius. Okay, church history joke, if you look at the timeline. Okay, you get the idea. So so obviously that's not the, like an early edition, but obviously there's been a later edition put out on Athanasius on the Incarnation with a introduction by C.S. Lewis. Now, I, I, I bet you if you took a thousand Christians, I bet you 950, 970, 980, 990, not only have they never read the book, many don't even know who Athanasius is, and many, some may know who Athanasius is, but they've probably never even heard of the book on the Incarnation. Now, first and foremost, I blame, obviously, pastors for not teaching their people church history, but many Christians, I don't care, you could tell them this is a masterpiece. You could tell this, this is the greatest book in the history of Christianity on the most important subject of the Incarnation. <laughs> They're not going to read it. You can beg, you can plead, you could come to church with a can of gasoline and say, I'm going to set myself on fire unless everyone in this church promises to read on the incarnation by Athanasius by next week. And I guarantee you someone in the congregation will say, well, just go ahead. Let me just go ahead and light the match and throw it on you because we're not going to read it. They're just not going to do it. Now, to be fair, Pastors could take the truths of Athanasian on the Incarnation, probably even preach and teach from the book, from the pulpit, and instead of, I don't know, canceling surf services on Christmas and around that time, and just having a little candlelight vigil, everyone holds hands, sings a couple of Christmas hymns, and gets home as fast as they can so they can open presents, maybe do an actual hour of teaching from on the Incarnation by Athanasius during, I don't know, Christmas time? That would be a that would be a radical thought, but you know who am I fooling? You know nobody's going to do that. But so there there's that one. The second one he mentioned was Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now I think well everyone knows who Martin Luther is. I mean I mean I hope everyone knows. I mean the Protestant Reformation. Hopefully everyone knows Martin Luther. Okay, All right. the ninety five theses. Okay, I hope everyone at least is familiar with him. Um, I don't know how many have ever read. It's funny. A lot of people will talk about the Reformation. A lot of t people will talk about Luther and the 95 Theses. Uh, okay, look, there is an app called Writings of Martin Luther. The Galatians commentary is on that app. Awesome. What's funny is that's a female <laughs> telling me that. Okay. <laughs> Just an observation. So let me see here. I'm going to go to the Apple App Store, because only the sanctified people go to the Apple App Store. All right, let's see here. Writings, writings of, if I can spell right, writings of Martin Luther. All right. Wait a minute, is this only an Android app? Because I am not seeing it. Let's do this. Let's go back. I'm just going to put Martin Luther. Uh, how come I'm not seeing it? I see the larger catechism. Uh, see, I see Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. Let's see. Writings. Let's look here. Why am I not seeing it? That is not showing up here. 
Let me do this. Hang on. Let's do a Google search really quick. I know where this is kind of taking away from what we were doing, but I'm now I'm just curious. Writings of Martin Luther, if I can spell right, app. It's, uh, I see it on uh, for the Google Play Store. Oh, I see Luther's Bible commentary. Well, if you type in, uh, I, I can't speak uh, for that one app called The Writings of Martin Luther. I do find it on the Google Play Store. But if I type in Luther's Bible commentary, it does show up here uh, for Apple. And it looks like they have a lot of things here. The only thing that makes me a little concerned, it says in-app uh, purchases. So I don't know if you have to purchase some of them. So, uh, yeah, you may you may want to look around and see what you can find um, there. But if you have an Android device, writings of Martin Luther. But the point is, whether you can find it, the app, I guarantee you if you go to uh, an Amazon Kindle store and type in uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, you should be able to find it and probably relatively cheap. So... Something to consider, but let's go back here. So let me go back to my the page that I had saved here. All right, so the first book was Athanasius on the Incarnation. All right, again, I, I tell you, a thousand Christians, 950 probably never read it, probably most have never even heard of Athanasius. All right, that's just a sad, sad fact and the sad, sad trait. And, and if you took a thousand and told them about it, probably still 950 wouldn't bother to read it. I, I'm just, it's just a sad reality. Now, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, uh, here's a description. Besides the Bible, John Bunyan preferred Luther's classic commentary in Galatians before all books I have ever seen. So according to John Bunyan, besides the Bible, he preferred Luther's commentary on Galatians before all the books he had ever seen. Prized for its penetrating insight into Luther's theology, this volume brings to light the depths of Paul's meaning like no other commentary. Luther's commentary on Galatians is a timeless exposition of Paul's central thought in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. All readers will benefit from Luther's doctrinally sound verse-by-verse exposition. Originally written in Latin, Luther's commentary on Galatians is here translated into English by Reverend Erasmus Middleton. And there you have it, okay? So, there, there you, 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 I, you may want to check these out. You may want to check these out. And, and again, I would be, I bet you if we had a thousand Christians, I bet you 950, they, they should all know who Martin Luther is. And, and again, I think, I, and I was going to say this when I got distracted. Uh, I, I think mo- 950 would say, we know who Luther is, but most of them have never even read the 95 thesis. I mean, they've never even read that. They were like, we believe in Luther. We believe in the Reformation. We believe in justification by faith alone. We hate those Catholics. Okay, they may not say they hate those Catholics. We hate Catholic theology. We despise it. Never read Luther's 95 Thesis. <laughs> Probably read and never read Luther's Catechism. Probably never read the Book of Congress. Probably read not, not, none of some of the major documents coming from the Reformation. Which again, it's just sometimes you have to just say, so do we really like Luther that much? Or is just we just glad that Luther stood against the Pope? Is, is that It's like Luther's the hero that we don't really care that much about. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. But I, I bet you, again, most have never read Luther's commentary on Galatians. And you know what? Again, I bet, I bet you if you made it available to most of your church members, they would not read it. Now, see, when I was a young, the reason I'm mentioning this, when I was a younger pastor, I would be like, what is wrong with Christians? Why won't they read? They're probably not even saved, right? And just like, what is, and like, now I, I'm trying to look at it and go, well, you know, I don't want to make excuses, but, but my question is, well, okay, what if they don't? Are they less spiritual? Can they can they not grow with just the Bible? I'm trying to give a more balanced perspective now. Let's go to the third one. Oh, the third one is hilarious. The third one, I'm sorry. The third one, I there's just no way. The, the third one is just absolutely never going to happen. All right, here we go. Here we go. John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which, by the way, is a lot easier to read than the title sounds uh, like it might be. Okay, that one absolutely cracks me up. That one absolutely cracks me up. You are not going, I, I will say for this one, you, I, I say 
you may have 950 out of 1,000 who have never read Athanasius on the Incarnation, who have never read Luther's commentary on Galatians. I think you have a far greater chance of giving them, a ch- they may even actually read some of, of Luther's commentary, some of Athanasius on the Incarnation. I absolutely will guarantee you're not going to get the average Christian to read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I have begged, pleaded, I think I've even offered money, okay, for, to get Christians. They will not do it. Now, I've always said I will never ordain anyone to ministry under any circumstances unless they have read at least the first, I think I always say five chapters, six chapters of, uh, Cal, uh, of uh, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Because that first section, uh, <laughs> someone says, yes, I will. I really think I will. Okay, uh, I know. And first of all, I disagree. Reading uh, Calvin's Institute is not easy. I just completely, that is not true. The title title doesn't even give you the, uh, giving you a hint of of the difficulties in it. Here's where I read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is when I did so. 1990s, I was working with what was called the NCOD, Non-Commissioned Officer of the Day. Basically, I worked from 6 p.m. at night to 6 in the morning. I was responsible for a host of things, security for the hospital. I was responsible for admissions and dispositions. I was responsible for preparing everything for uh, uh, for same-day surgeries the next day. I was responsible uh, for filling out death certificates if someone was to die in the ER. I was responsible for taking the body down to the morgue. I had, I had a, a lot of responsibilities. It sounds like a lot, but when you're working 12 hours overnight, a lot of times it was very, there was, a, you know, eight, seven, eight hours where I really wasn't doing a lot. And so I bought a notebook. I bought a copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And boom, I started reading and working, reading and studying, reading, studying, reading. When I say working, working on trying to understand it. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no framework. I had no one helping me. I was doing my best. I was so confused by some of it. Other parts of it, I'm like, ooh, this is profound. Other parts, I'm like, wait, what? Are you out of your mind? Like, I, I can't remember. There's a section that, that gives supposedly all these reasons why we should believe in infant baptism. And I was like, what? Okay. But I, I read it. But as, as whatever I would found, whatever I found in it that I thought was profound, and I tried to tell others about it, nobody really cared. That's just the reality. Now, it's... Uh, this is interesting, at least from my historical understanding, from, from my study of church history, the Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion was originally designed for new converts. It was like that, that, that discipleship material for a new believer. Now, if you go to the modern day Christian bookstore and look at the content for new believers, it's basic elementary simplistic. This was like full blown systematic theology, but the, the average Christian, I'm just telling you, the average Christian is not going to read it. They're just not going to do so. And you, you can, we, we can make all of the judgments we can, but there you have it. Here's, here's a little bit about it. At the age of 26, Calvin published several revisions of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, a seminal work in Christian theology that altered the course of Western history and that is still read by theological students today. It was published in Latin in 1536 and his native French in 1541, with the definitive editions appearing in 1559 in Latin and in 1560 in French. The book was written as an introductory textbook on the Protestant faith for those with some learning already and covered a broad range of theological topics from the doctrine of the church and sacraments to justification by faith alone. Now, again, it says an introduction for those who already had some learning. My understanding is that it was written to those who are new to the faith. So there may be some historical discrepancy there, depending on where you get your historical information, but you can, you can do your own research and see. But so the three books so far, number one, Athanasius on the incarnation. Now everyone, okay, let's see. I'm going to, never mind. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to give my opinion on these. Um, I, I mean, I, obviously I, I wanted my church to know about Athanasius. So uh, I 
We've talked about Athanasius so many times. We've talked about the Athanasian Creed. I've went over the history of his life. I gave a book out, giving everyone a basic understanding of his life. So obviously, I believe people should read Athanasius. All right? Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. We've, we've taken apart the 95 Theses. We used to challenge the young, the young children in church because, you know, Reformation is on October 31st. So we used to always say, hey, you want candy? For every one of the 95 Theses you have memorized, we'll give you candy for that. Um, so I, yeah, even trying to bribe the kids to memorize the 95 thesis. Okay. The adults, you know, maybe if I offered a hundred dollars for each one, I could have gotten a couple. All right. <laughs> Number two, so that was, so there's Luther's commentary on Galatians. Number three, I, I typically for Cal, for Calvin or for Calvin, for Luther, I typically don't recommend the commentary. What I always try to get people to read is, uh, Luther's, uh, small and larger catechism. That's usually what I try to get people to read. So, and I've done lots of just impromptu studies where we work through parts of Luther's uh, catechism. So, when I when I when I first became a Lutheran and wanted to become a Lutheran pastor, it was Calvin. I keep saying Calvin. Luther's catechism that was uh, so instrumental and, and impactful to me. Um, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. At least just read the first couple of chapters of of the first volume. I mean, even if you don't do anything else, at our church, we have all of Calvin's all of Calvin's commentaries in our library. I don't think they've ever been touched by anyone, but they're there, okay? They're there, all right? Next, oh, okay, I'm not going to, okay, I'm not going to mention the next one. Next one, I, I didn't even, I'm, I must have skipped this one. All right, here we go. Let's listen to the next one. And uh, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Oh, now, I love catechisms. That's why when it comes to Luther, I don't recommend the commentaries. I recommend the catechism. All right. The reason I always recommend catechisms, I don't care if it's the West, I don't care if it's the Westminster Catechism, Luther's Catechism, Puritan Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism. If it's a catechism, I always recommend the catechisms because there that's one everyone can read the catechism. Everyone can read catechisms. It is they are they are. Look, there's some of these books, like the Institutes of the Christian Religion, maybe even Athanasius, maybe even uh, Luther's uh, commentary on Galatians. There's some of those things that I understand that the average person sitting in the pew, not only do they not care. Uh, yes, someone just said we stu- oh, someone uh, we studied that in the church. Yes, we studied the Heidelberg Catechism in our church. Yes. Um, the reason I always recommend the catechisms is because the average person can actually read that. The av- average person can actually engage with it. The average person can actually do something with it. And the way the catechism works, like, let me just pull up the Heidelberg catechism here. Th- this is the reason I love the Heidelberg, ca- or any of the catechisms. But let's see here, Heidelberg uh, catechism. All right, here we go can probably find it right here online. Yes. Okay, here we go. Heidelberg Catechism. This, I'm like, every, anyone can read this. And the thing is, is the Heidelberg Catechism is broken down into days, like Lord's Day 1. So just typically the way the Heidelberg Catechism was designed was like morning time, you would be at church. Then in the afternoon, you would have a time of studying the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the evening, you would have your evening service, right? So every Christian... Every Christian can, on a Sunday afternoon, instead of taking their naps or whatever they do, they can pull out the Heidelberg Catechism and spend a little bit of a Sunday afternoon with one of the questions. Everyone can participate in it. It, it, It's not like reading Calvin's Institutes. It's not like reading Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's not like reading Luther's Commentary on Galatians. Everyone can do this. It's just so... It's, there's just no excuse for not reading the catechisms because everyone can do so. So this one is where you're like, come on. But here we go. Let me just read it. Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's a powerful question. What is your only comfort? We may talk about Jesus being my comfort in death, but what is your comfort in this life? Because life has plenty of issues and problems and difficulties and struggles and sadness and frustration and, and pain and irritation and anger and bitterness and, and, and mistakes and failure and sin and guilt and shame. Life is just filled with a million issues. So what is your only comfort? Answer, that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is my own? What is my only comfort? That I am not my own and that I belong body and soul in life and in death. I belong in this life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then it gives me a number of scriptures to meditate on. Just question one is worth, forget, it's worth three or four months of meditation and study. And everyone can read that. Anyone can read that. A teenager can read it elementary kid could read. Everyone can read the Heidelberg Catechism. So some of these, you're just like, okay, really? I, I know sometimes it's, it's theologians, it's pastors. We always think everyone should read everything. Again, younger pastor, why don't you people read? You're all going to go to hell, basically. Now I'm kind of like, well, we're, we're, when, I, when I said that, was I calling into question the sufficiency of scripture? What do you actually need to grow as a Christian? Do you need these other things? Well, we, we could have that discussion. I think we've got to be careful that we don't seem to call into question the sufficiency of Scripture. But I know this, the Heidelberg Catechism. In fact, all of those points, they come directly from Scripture. So in a roundabout way, what a catechism does is it gives you the question, and then it really gives you a, a, a summary of biblical teaching and in, in in the answer. So really, you're just studying Bible in a roundabout way. So... You know, now you may disagree with their conclusions in a a particular catechism you're studying. I don't agree with everything in Heidelberg, but it it always gives me plenty to think about. So, so there's the Heidelberg, right? Now, this is what they have to say about the Heidelberg. The Heidelberg Catechism has been admired for its clarity as an expression of the Reformed Christian faith. Let me make sure it's very clear. Even if you're not, even if you're not a, look, I will read catechisms. I don't care who they're written by. I may not agree with them, but again, it's just, it, they're just so easy for study and for reading. All right, uh, as well, so it's it's admired for its clarity and expression of Reformed Christian faith, as well as for its warm personal tone. Many of its questions and answers, and especially question and answer number one, have been memorized by thousands and have become an anchor of faith. I, it's probably been memorized by millions, I think, to be fair. But uh, there you have the Heidelberg Catechism. All right, now let's go to number five. Uh, and R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Now, I'm leaving a lot out that I, I would still recommend to people. Those are the ones that come to mind as really kind of have a potential for shifting paradigms for people. Okay, and then number five, they mention R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Now, I think it's an amazing book. I think it's a great book. I don't think it's as essential maybe as Athanasius on the Incarnation, as Luther's commentary in Galatians, because you're dealing with justification. Um, Calvin's instant, I think in some ways, if you take R.C. Sproul's holiness of God, personally, I think all that R.C. Sproul does in the holiness of God is really take Calvin's Institutes, chapter one, two, three, four, and five, and just takes it and puts it in a more, and puts it in a form that's easier easier for the average Christian to access and to read. I think he just summarizes a lot of what Calvin does in the first couple of ch- uh, chapters of the Institutes. That's my, that's my own personal feeling, is that The Holiness of God is a great book by all means. It's an amazing book. I am no way dim- diminishing it. I just think that in many ways, all he does is he borrows from, from Calvin. That's my own personal feelings, uh, because pretty much anytime any of us mention God or mention the holiness of God, anytime I mention, I I say this all the time. uh, Okay, someone just said, uh, not to distract again, but on Android, there's an app called Heidelberg Catechism. It it has each one. All right, awesome. So there we go. So in other words, a lot of these things can be found on apps for absolutely free. Again, another amazing thing living in 2022. Okay, but so, but uh, anytime you hear me mention the doctrine of God and I say, we must see God as he truly is before we can see ourselves as we truly are, that's straight from Calvin. 
That's Calvin's Institutes. We have to see God as he truly is before we can truly understand ourselves as we really are. We will never see ourselves as we really are until we see God as he truly is. That's from Calvin. Uh, R.C. Sproul and the holiness of God basically takes that same concept and drives it. Now, he does a he does a, some fascinating things with uh, talking about Luther and uh, R.C. Sproul's holiness of God. I, I don't know which chapter that is, but he talks about uh, uh, Martin Luther. That's a fascinating chapter in the holiness of God. So it's an amazing book, but it's much, uh, it's, it, it, it's easier for the average person to read. All right. So there's the five. So let's do a couple of things here, like just because I just wanted to mention these, but I'll go back to my original questions. Number one, what is essential, absolutely essential for you to grow as a Christian outside of the Bible? What is essential? Now, you have a million things available to you as a Christian. Like I said, Edify Christian Podcast app, literally two million Christian podcasts. You, 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 couldn't, you could not live five lifetimes and listen to everything available to you. Some of it would be great. Some of it wouldn't be great, but it's all available to you. At any time of the day in the Sermons 2.0 app, there's live broadcast going on. Anytime, any, anytime, there, there's live broadcast going. We have so many, we have the entire history of Christianity available literally on our phones. We have so many, we have sermons, we have commentaries, we have the church fathers, we have so much available to us. We have Bible study guide, we have everything available to us. But even though that's all helpful, is it essential? So, what do we say if you have Christians who are like, you know what? I, it, no, in other words, if we say the Bible is, is, is all you need, then you really can't say anything negative about those who don't read. Those who read, do, do they demonstrate a higher level of spiritual growth? Now, I would say that we should use every tool available to us. Yes? But again, if you're on, back to my original illustration, if you have an island, it's deserted, only two people on it, one person living on the far south side, the one living on the far north side. Nobody, know, They don't know the other one exists. One on the south side, all they have is a Bible. The one on the north side has everything. The Bible, they have some, some of the most important books written in church history. They have the Sermons 2.0 app. They have the Edify Christian Podcast app. They have all of these things. Does the one with all of those things grow more than the one who doesn't? And if the one grows more than the one who doesn't have those things, then those other things would be essential, right? I, I think, I, I, I just think that's an important question to consider because, and, and I, I, you can go through all of those books and, I, and, and most of those books that we just mentioned. Again, if we go through these, talk about the average church. Again, you take a thousand people, Thousand people in a congregation say, all right, how many here have read On the Incarnation by Athanasius? I'm telling you, not, less than 50 are going to raise their hand. And probably the ones who raise their hand, probably most of them are called to ministry or are in the process of going to school to become a minister. Many won't even know who Athanasius is or, what, or, or that he even wrote a book on the Incarnation. Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, many will go, oh, Martin Luther, he's that guy who fought the Pope. And, but they've never even read the 95 Theses, much less his catechism, and much less his commentary. Again, I think you'd probably have nine, about 950 who had never read it. John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, I bet you that 950 goes to 999, okay? I, I, there's pastors who've never even read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian There are pastors who've never even read them. There's pastors who don't, who've never touched it. In fact, it would be interesting if I go back to every pastor I've ever had, I don't think I've ever said in a pastor who's read Calvin's Institutes. I, I, I don't, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism. Now this one, you would find a lot more people who have read this one because they probably go to churches that study the Heidelberg Catechism. Like we studied the Heidelberg Catechism at my church. So there's a lot of people who would like, I did, I, they could say they read it, but they read it with the church, but that's fine. Uh, so you, we'd get a far greater number of those reading the Heidelberg Catechism, but everyone could read the Heidelberg Catechism. I think you would have a far greater chance of actually getting, you could actually motivating someone to do that. R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Anyone and everyone could read, could read 
could read it. Every everyone could. I mean, it, it's nothing super ap- academic. There was a, a a video series to it. There was an audio series to it. There was Bible study guides to it. I mean, they they had all ev- everything you could possibly want for um, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. But I think in many of those cases you can't. So it comes down to this: one, why do you think many Christians just don't read? They just, they don't, they don't want to read Christian books. They don't want to read Christian commentaries. They don't want to read Christian uh, church history books. They just don't want to read. Now, is it because they're fleshly? We always got to remind ourselves. There's some of us, like me, who may read, but it's not necessarily a spiritual thing because I was reading before I was saved. So my desire to read is just a fleshly thing. It's not necessarily a spiritual thing. See, so in other words, one can read all the time and not be any more, can be more, it doesn't demonstrate anything more spiritual than those who don't. So in other words, who reads and who doesn't read cannot literally be a mark of who is more spiritual, which again is a problem because early on in my Christian life, I would have guaranteed that it was a, I would have said it's a sign. It's a, it's proof. It's, it's a, it's, it's one of those things in the test to prove if you're saved. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I don't think we can, but it, it, we could ask the question, why do Christians not want to read? I, I, I think there's a lot to go there. And I think just number two, we can't, we can't make it a test of one's spirituality because some people just like to read and it has nothing to do with being spiritual. It could be just a fleshly motivation. I think that, I think that's the second thing to consider. I think number three, it is interesting. Why is it That typically, again, if it's men who feel called to ministry, if it's men going to school for ministry, they're typically the ones who buy books and read books and talk about books. But in the, when it comes to the average church member, it's usually women who read and not the men. I, now you can go back to, would statistics say that women read more than men? I think you probably could. I think, I think statistically we can prove that. So therefore it's not a sign of spirituality. It's just a sign of some people liking to read. So See, right back to not proving anything. And then the the most important thing is, though, does any of it really matter? Now, the Christian publishing world will tell you it matters. Every time the church comes with a new program or a new ministry, they tell you it's absolutely essential to one's spiritual life. But does it, what do you actually need outside of the Bible to grow? Now, we say, well, the pastor, the church gave. Christ gave the church pastors and teachers and evangelists, and them writing these books are absolutely beneficial to the body. It is. But if I don't have them, will I not grow as much as those who do? It, it is an interesting th- thing, because I think, I think on one hand, we want to say the Bible is sufficient, and then we have a tendency to go against that, especially in our marketing and our promotion. Um, of everything from Christian conferences to everything else. But those are the five books. I I don't know if, if I was to make my list of five. Heidelberg is a great choice. Calvin's Institutes, I always say book one. I don't, I, I don't say all the other books. I can't remember four volumes, three volumes, can't remember how many volumes. Um, Athanasius is, yeah, I, I mean, you can't go wrong with Athanasius. I probably wouldn't put R.C. Sproul, uh, Holiness of God, on the list. I don't know. What's your five? What's your five? You can post what you think are five books outside of the Bible that are absolutely essential. And then I'll just end with this. Look, whether you read or don't read, let's make, I think we should be dogmatic about this, especially as non-Catholics. Look, all the other books we're reading are wonderful and great, and I do think you can benefit greatly from them. But let's make it very clear. If you got a choice, read and study Luther, read and study Calvin, read and study Athanasius, or read and study the Bible itself involved in an actual Bible study like we're doing with Matthew 24 or any of the Bible study exercises. All If you, if you don't like to read and you're limited in what you will read, spend that time reading and studying the Bible. Always put that first before all of these other books from whomever. They may be beneficial. But the Bible has to be first. If you are able to discipline yourself in doing your Bible study and then doing additional reading, well, you've got 
2,000 years of church history filled with books, 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 book, millions of books, from commentaries to devotionals to you name it, have been written for the edification and building up of the body of Christ. But if you have to choose, always choose the word of God. I think that's something that we can count on. But if you have five, I would like to know, what. put it this way, what are the five books outside of the Bible that's had the most profound impact on your Christian life? That's a better way to put it. What and and what do you? How much if you, if you did not read those books, what would, it, would do you think your Christian life would not be what it is today? In other words, can you name five books in your Christian life that just had a profound impact that you can't imagine your Christian life without them? You can tell me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, YouTube in the comment section. All right, let let me know. Tell me what you think. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Kind of an impromptu. Uh, we really wasn't even on the schedule to do, but um, I just I saw that video and thought, wow, that that raises lots of questions. So there you go. You can tell me what you think. All right, thanks for listening. Uh, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. will be uh, the book of Jude. I think we get to the purpose of the book. We, we kind of started it, but I'm going to kind of go back over that a little bit more. And then we're in a weird, weird section in Romans 9 because we've been looking at all these promises to Israel and we've only really got like three promises left. So I don't know what to do there. <laughs> so we're going to look at them. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to go to a commentary. I hope the commentary is at the church because I can't find it. We're going to look at a commentary on Romans 9 about not all, not all Israel is Israel. And uh, because, well, that's why we've been looking at all these promises to Israel. And you'll see how that will all come together. So that's going to be kind of a, a weird, interesting thing. So we'll see. And then Sunday night um, will be Matthew 24. A preterist interpretation of Matthew 24. That's what we'll be working on Sunday night. Oh, we're going to be using a book written by R.C. Sproul. So that's what we'll, that's what we'll be, we'll be seeing. And, and someone made the joke that, hey, the one on the island, I, they didn't specify which one on the island in my opening illustration would be most confused. But I do believe it's true that the more content you have written by Christians throughout church history, I think sometimes you do end up more confused because you could get, I've said it before, you could get 10 commentaries on any passage of scripture. And by the time you're done, you end up with 50 interpretations. So it is true that sometimes all of the books will confuse. You can have the Heidelberg Catechism telling you one thing. You can have the Puritan Catechism telling you a different thing. You can have the Westminster Confession of Faith telling you one thing. You can have the London Baptist Confession of Faith telling you another thing. So you can have Calvin telling you one thing, you can have Luther telling you another thing. So there is, there is, there is some truth that sometimes the more we read written within Christianity, the more confused we become about Christianity. That's a podcast in and of itself. But when we read Sproul on Matthew 24, (laughs) yeah, it's going to be very different than any other commentary we would pick up on Matthew 24. So yeah, there, there is a danger of that, but all right, there you go. All right, everyone have a good night. God bless.